Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Nancy Leong, Professor of Law at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. We will discuss co-authoring articles with students, focusing on her articles, Consent Forms and Consent Formalism, which she co-authored with Kira Sueshi, and Communication in Cyberspace, which she co-authored with Joanne Miranda. So welcome to the podcast, Nancy. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you on the show. I'm really looking forward to this because, as you know, co-authoring with students is a subject that I'm really interested in as well and have done a couple times. And I'm really interested to hear about your experiences and to get your recommendations as well because you've had so much experience with it. Well, it's something I really enjoy, and I'm excited to have a chance to talk about it. So, um, yeah, this should be great. Okay. Well, I was thinking maybe we could start by talking about each one of the two papers that we decided to focus on for for the episode, just so that listeners kind of have a sense of what the papers were about, so that they'll better understand what the collaboration process was like. So maybe we could start with the one that you did with Kira Sueshi. Um, what kind of consent forms was that paper uh, about, and sort of why were they important in that context? Yeah, so consent forms are a really interesting issue in the law enforcement context. And uh, a lot of my scholarship has dealt with Fourth Amendment law. And the way that consent forms come up in the Fourth Amendment context is that when a police officer wants to do a search, but doesn't have probable cause to do that search, um, or, you know, doesn't... uh, you know, have one of the exceptions to probable cause to do the search, he can ask for consent, right? And consent, if it's uh, given in a manner consistent with the Constitution, uh, obviates the need for either probable cause or a warrant or really anything else. Um, the consent of the person who's, whose uh, property is being searched is enough. And so the way that consent forms um, come up is they have become increasingly used in police departments as a way of uh, putting into writing the fact that consent was given. And so Kira and I, Kira is one of our 2013 graduates here at the University of Denver, were interested in looking at how frequently consent forms were used and what happened to the people uh, in whose cases consent forms were used compared to uh, people who gave consent but didn't do so in writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what were your findings? Um, so the findings uh, were really interesting. Um, I think probably the most interesting. So we looked at a set of cases that were um, decided between 2005 and 2009. And um, this is a large set of cases. I won't, you know, for purposes of, of a podcast, drill down into all sure. of the yeah. all of the data. But it was a large set of cases. Um, some some involving consent given with a consent form, and some involving consent um, obtained but without a consent form, memorializing that consent. And what we found mm-hmm. was that when there was a written consent form, um, courts were likely were very likely to treat that as outcome determinative, meaning that if Mm. the defendant consented to a particular search in writing, 
he or or she um, was treated by the court uh, as though he or she had almost certainly um, waived the Fourth Amendment right when, uh, you know, like defendants who hadn't signed a consent form, they also almost always lost, but Mm. it wasn't as as automatic. There's actually an analysis Mm. of whether they had, you know, given consent voluntarily. And so we thought that this is really interesting, this this idea, um, you know, based on kind of this base level uh, empirical finding that, um, you know, like when there is something in writing, it basically means that the court will rely on that rather than looking at the surrounding circumstances. Yeah, that seems like they're giving a bit too much weight to the fact that it just happens to be signed as opposed to not. Well, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And in particular, the idea that, you know, if you can um, coerce somebody into giving consent to search, then surely you can also coerce them into (laughs) signing a form, right? And saying, oh, like, this is just a little bit of paperwork. And, you know, so our our, um, conclusion is not that consent forms are bad, but just that courts need to examine them as closely as they would a situation in which there was no consent form and not treat it as sort of, you know, both the beginning and the end of the inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. So how did this collaboration come about? Was Kara one of your students? Was she a research assistant for you before you started working on it together? Uh, So both, actually. So she was a student in... um, one of my classes, a seminar that I teach on Section uh, 1983 litigation um, for any non-lawyers, that's the statute under which constitutional claims get into federal court in the first place. Um, so she was my student, and I thought she was fantastic. So I asked her to be my research assistant. This is this was literally my very first year at the University of Denver. Wow, wow, and cool. yeah, and she did such good work as a research assistant that then over the summer, right? So this is the summer after my first year at the University of Denver. For her, it was the summer after her second year and before her third year. Um, I asked her if she would be interested in writing something with me. And at this point, this was only the second time that I'd thought about collaborating with a student, but she was just so wonderful that, um, you know, like she had already helped me with the research. I thought that she might... um, uh, you know, benefit from and both benefit Mm. from and contribute a lot to the actual writing of the article. So it's a really um, kind of natural progression um, from getting to know this uh, really fantastic student in the classroom to working uh, with her in a researching context to realizing that we could expand the collaboration further. Cool. So to clarify, this is a project where she was your research assistant on the project and then later became your co-author on the same project. So sort of a a development of the same relationship. Yeah, I think that's an accurate way to describe it. Although I will say that the the, the project that she began researching originally was not a very well-developed idea at that point in time. It was basically me wanting to know more about consent forms and, you know, asking her, can you find me all the cases where a court um, decided 
an issue relating to consent forms during this period of time. And, um, you know, me not really knowing at all what she was going to find or what that was going to look like. Um, you know, so um, there was definitely some um, evolution in, I think, everybody's thinking about both uh, what the project was going to be and then the scope of our collaboration as things went around, um, or as things mm -hmm. went along. It happened, it happened really organically. Right. What was the writing process like? How did you sort of break that up or manage that with her? That's a really good question. And, you know, I would actually uh, love to hear how you manage this as well, because it's something that I really end up taking a different approach with every time, depending on the student and the project and, um, mm -hmm. you know, like a host of other factors. Um, in this particular situation, um, once I saw what uh, the, the data I've described to you, once I saw, once I saw what the data were looking like, I had a pretty clear, um, idea of what I thought the paper should look like in my mind. And so, um, before coming on the podcast, it was actually kind of fun to look back and I, um, pulled up the memo that I wrote her, um, you know, back in, back in, um, I guess it would have been 2013, about what I tentatively thought the project would look like and who I thought should write each section. Um, and so I sent her this, um, it was a two-page memo basically saying, you know, I think the introduction should say these things. Um, you know, section one, we should describe the doctrine. Section two, we should um, describe our methodology and what we found when we looked at the cases. And, you know, like I suggested um, a person to write each of those sections. Um, so I was a little bit um, top down in terms of the high level organization of the project. Um, but mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, like the arguments that we made within each section and even more so the reforms that we ended up recommending, um, Kira really brought a lot to that. And like in terms of the prescriptions, one of the things we talk about is increased use of video cameras, like during the uh, interaction where an officer is asking um, somebody to sign a form. We think that actually could be very helpful. So, you know, I mean, I think... Um, I would say that I, I dictated the structure of the project. Um, uh, I, I did mm -hmm. quite a bit of dictating the structure at the beginning, but then in terms of the ideas and the substance, um, you know, like that was, that was an equal partnership. Um, you know, it wasn't like, wasn't like right. I was the boss and, you know, she was a sort of a, like a, like an employee or something like that. I would, I would call that a, a you know, like a true collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it comes to, as no great surprise that you're considerably more organized than I am. Um, but, uh, but one thing I would be interested to know about the collaboration aspect as well is sort of how you went about doing it. I mean, did you mostly kind of exchange ideas like in person during like office hours or meetings or telephone, email, sort of in-document collaboration? What did you find most effective? We, I think, did literally all the things you described <laughs> at some point. Um, but the, so the, the original memo that I mentioned 
I wrote after about a two hour conversation. Um, I think uh, maybe, maybe we were, maybe we were in my, in my office at school, um, a two hour conversation about, um, you know, what she had found and what it meant. And I think I was writing on my whiteboard, you know, so we had a long conversation and from that I drew the structure. But then after that, uh, I opened a Dropbox folder. I'm a fan of Dropbox. So I opened up a Dropbox folder and, Mm. um, you know, uh, we had a draft that we went back and forth on. Uh, We also had a lot of other documents. So we, whenever I do a collaboration with a student or anybody, I have a blank word document that's just called uh, thoughts <laughs> and you know anything, anything we don't have time to deal with in the moment can go there, right? Like a link the other person should look at because it's interesting or a case that like mm-hmm. we, you know, hadn't found before or something like that. Um, and so Dropbox became sort of the, um, you know, the, the, uh, medium that we communicated to each other through a lot. Um, we also um, early on um, drew up a calendar on Google calendars. Like I literally had, a, you know, a calendar that was called Kira and um, we set some tentative deadlines about, okay, well, you know, like Nancy will send this section to Kira by the state or, you know, the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, it was a very, um, it, it wasn't sort of like, okay, you write your sections and I'll write mine and then I'll see you in three months. Um, there was a lot of interaction. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how that works. I, I mean, I use Google Drive in much the same way it sounds like you use Dropbox. So they're sort of more or less the same thing, I think. You know, I thought, I thought of using, I think Google Drive has gotten yeah. a lot uh, a lot better in the, you know, like in the years since I first started collaborating with students, like a lot better as a tool. And, you know, like I've wondered whether um, that would be a useful thing to do down the road. Um, yeah. G- give it a, give it a try. I found it really useful, especially when you want to write with someone at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, which... <laughs> that's the thing about Dropbox. There are definitely a lot of emails back and forth. Like, are you in the document? No. Are you in the document? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I've actually done collaborations with people where we were both working on the same document at the same time. And it's actually like weird, but kind of can be like, like ultra productive yeah. as well. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe give it a try sometime. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd love so to maybe. That. Yeah, maybe we can switch to the other paper and kind of compare the collaboration experience. Sure. Um, yeah. So the one with uh, you wrote with Joanne Mirando, communication in cyberspace. Um, you know, w- what was that paper about, and how did that collaboration take place? Yeah. So um, Joanne was also originally my student in a criminal procedure class. And her goal was to be a prosecutor, and she is today a prosecutor, which is wonderful. Um, So, uh, you know, again, like she really knocked it out of the park in my class. She was fantastic. And um, by that point in time, I was having students do a memo assignment as a um, kind of a non-traditional midterm. And so I knew that she was a good writer. So I had an interest in writing about, uh, you know, like cyber, cyber law is not really um, my core area of expertise, but 
there was there, there was one particular thing, which, which I'll say in a minute, which I, I felt like judges were really struggling with. And um, it would be really helpful to have a paper uh, kind of make an intervention in that struggle. And mm. so I approached Joanne. Um, so I, um, as, as an aside, I try to, I try to co-author with about one student per year. And, um, you know, I was, I had Joanne in my class, like around the time that I was, um, beginning to think about who would be a good person to write with. And so I already had the project in mind, um, in a much more specific way than I had with the consent forms paper. And, Joanne uh, was this great student that I had in class. And so I sought her out and asked her if she would be interested in writing something with me. And I think that mm. she was a little bit more surprised than Kira. Like Joanne was very litigation oriented, whereas Kira was maybe a little bit more um, like Kira had been on law review and I think maybe had just spent more time with legal scholarship. You know, Joanne hadn't been a, a research assistant for a professor or anything like that. Um, but she was excited about the idea too, and I thought that it um, harmonized really nicely with her, uh, you know, like career goals as a prosecutor. And so, mm -hmm. um, what um, ended up happening there is that I approached her with the idea, and then we kind of hashed it out together by talking about it um, and talking about um, a lot of different situations. And the so the the idea, which I'll, you know, I'll go ahead and lay out now is that judges are not good at figuring out what counts as an act of communication in cyberspace. And that mm -hmm. is complicated because judges don't understand the internet. Judges don't understand Twitter. Judges don't understand Facebook. They don't understand Snapchat. They don't understand how um, something that would be innocuous on one platform can actually be, um, you know, potentially bullying on another platform. Um, I just don't understand mm. how these how these platforms work. And so our big picture conclusion was that judges need to get judges need to get in the habit of getting familiar with um, different social media platforms if they're going to actually understand what it means to communicate on the internet. Um, but then the uh, sort of more specific intervention that our paper took was to look at the cyber stalking, cyber harassment, and cyber bullying websites in all, or not, I'm sorry, not websites, statutes in all 50 states, and then um, figure out uh, what would count as uh, communication within the meaning of each state's statutes. And we ended up grouping the state's statutes and came up for a, a taxonomy of, um, you know, what would count as communication and then how that mapped onto the different mm. platforms. Well, that's interesting. Did you, did you find a, a wide range of definitions? I mean, I would think that it would be relatively consistent, but maybe not. Yeah, there was, there was quite a range. Um, and, you know, like some States, basically it's like some States have, have updated and some States are still talking about like bulletin boards, right? <laughs> Oh, you know? I remember those from when I was in junior high yeah, school. Yeah, and like, um, you know, how, uh, you know, like how you could, how you could potentially like bully somebody by, um, you know, posting um, something derogatory on a bulletin board. Um, 
but uh, you know, there, there, there was, there was more range than we expected. I would actually think that um, there might be less of a range now, although I haven't undertaken to update um, the research that we did back in, it's probably like 2014 when we were actually doing the research. I haven't undertaken to, to update that, but mm. I think, um, you know, with the, with the increased focus on the internet and on social media platforms, I think that um, a bunch of state legislatures have been motivated to make some, you know, we'll call them, we'll call them updates to their um, mm. laws relating to um, cyber stalking, cyber harassment, and cyber bullying. Uh, so did you find that there were kind of differences in the collaboration process with that second paper? Um, or were was it largely kind of a similar sort of experience on the the sort of collaboration side of the writing and the production of the paper itself? It was a very different experience. And you know, I think I think you're you're I, I really appreciate the question because it's forcing me to think about, you know, like how from a process standpoint it was uh, a different paper. I would say that the first paper was a little bit more of an idea paper and a little bit more of, um, you know, like seeing a phenomenon in the world and figuring out how to explain it. Whereas the second paper involved a problem that, you know, pretty much anybody would, would agree was a problem and just mm. searching out the 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 data to explain um, concretely why it was a problem, and then making the law intersect with known facts about the world, specifically the way people communicate on platforms. So I felt that mm. the task was pretty different in each of these works of scholarship, and to me that really dictated. Um, the way that the process evolved differently. Like with the first paper, it was really important to me that Kira and I have a meeting of the minds about, um, you know, what, what exactly was the argument that we wanted to make? In terms of the paper I wrote with Joanne, it was more, okay, did we find all of the information? Have we really thought about all the platforms? Um, you know, it was more, how do we organize all of this information and present it in a way that mm -hmm. judges and frankly, hopefully, hopefully lawyers too, right? Because lawyers are not all doing a good job at writing about the way people communicate on the internet, um, how, how mm -hmm. to, in a way that hopefully is helpful to lawyers and judges. Mm -hmm. Um, so the nature of the project really in some ways dictated the nature of the collaboration that that seems to make sense. Yeah, to me. it did. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think, I, I can't, I can't remember if I've co-authored with six students or seven students at this, at this mm. time. I think it's, I think it's six students, but seven papers because I wrote two papers with one student. Um, and uh -huh. you know, I really find that the nature of the project dictates the collaboration process. Having said that, you know, the student mm -hmm. and their goals often dictates what the project looks like in the first place. So, yeah. you know, I think that um, 
it's kind of an uh, maybe a, an iterative process would be a good way to to describe it. Um, like if if Joanne yeah. um, had not had this very clear goal of um, becoming a prosecutor, you know, I mean, I think we potentially could have taken a somewhat different approach to the project. But because because she did, mm-hmm. I mean, I think we wanted to write something that was really grounded and practical and helpful, um, mm-hmm. and that seemed like a really good direction direction to go. Right. So I was wondering without like naming any a particular student or talking about it in too much too much detail are there are there experiences you've had where a collaborative paper project kind of didn't work out as you'd planned um and and if so uh you know kind of what would your thoughts be about sort of how to think about you know finding good collaborations as opposed to ones that are less likely to be effective that's a great question um so I have never had a paper not work out in the sense that it has always, you know, um, gone through to the end and resulted in a published paper. And I always had what I believe to be a good relationship with the, with the student at the end of the at the end of the project. I mean, I don't know how the student how the student felt about me, but I I like this. Mm. I I liked all the students at the end and. Um, they, you know, did not, did not appear to be overtly hostile to me. So, you know, I, I would say that, um, I've been really lucky to have good collaborators, um, in terms of things that, um, have come up along the way, you know, I think a lesson that I learned early on was that it was really important for me to, recognize that this was not going to be a student's top priority, nor should it be, and to build Mm. the writing schedule around their schedule. Um, You know, I think one of the luxuries that we have as professors is that, you know, like we teach our classes and do a lot of preparation for that and we do our research, but we, we... we do have compared to many, many people in profession in in many professions, we have a lot of flexibility about when we do things, you know, like, do we work at 5am? Do we work at 10pm? I think that, you know, different people have different circumstances, but as a generalization, I think that our schedules tend to be pretty flexible. And that's not always true for um, students, right? Like they have midterms, they have finals and, you know, uh, this is probably something that should have been obvious from the beginning, but um, one of the reasons that I made a calendar, like a really detailed calendar with Kira is because I wanted to know things like, you know, like what, what, what weeks would she be doing literally nothing because she would be studying for finals. And then those were the weeks I could plan to spend um, on my sections or, you know, when did she have a law firm interview? And, you know, like same, same kind of thing and then vice versa. So, um, you know, like, I think, um, it was important for me to, um, just be really aware of, uh, my co-author's schedule in a way that it wouldn't necessarily for a collaboration with another professor, um, and again, you know, I think that that, that this is a situation where individual mileage may vary, like, um, different people have different kinds of demands on their, on their time. 
Um, but I think that law students have a lot of demands and it was important to chart that out. Yeah, that's actually a fantastic point and one that I think I have not been as cognizant of as I probably should be. It's so easy to forget how much flexibility we can have, um, you know, and not to realize how much of a time crunch they can find themselves in. Um, yeah. So, well, ch- changing speed just a little bit, I was wondering if you could talk about the reception of co-authors papers, both, you know, when you're submitting them to law reviews and also, you know, among colleagues and so on, you know, sort of, how, do you get a sense of how people think about papers that you've co-authored with students? Do they think about them differently than papers you've written by yourself, which is still for better or worse, the norm in legal academy, or do you you find that people treat them the same as anything else? You know, I'm so glad that you asked that, Brian, because I really found um, a whole range of reception in the legal academy. Um, Some people are really interested in the idea, and if they think it's a good idea and um, a good paper, like they don't care whose name is on it, whether it's my name or a student's name or my name and the student's name. Um, other people, um, and I would say this is a minority, but I think that there are some people who are a little bit patronizing um, when it comes to student student involvement. Um, or they make assumptions that are not necessarily true. Like they assume that the student wrote the paper and then I added my name to it. And, you know, I think that there may be um, professors in the legal academy and elsewhere who do that. Um, I would never have my name on a piece of scholarship unless I had been intimately involved <laughs> in, <laughs> in its creation, right? Because, yeah. um, you know, I wouldn't given what the norms are in the legal academy, like I would feel total responsibility for the paper and about it. Um, so I think that some people have um, had the reaction that, uh, you know, um, like no, nobody's like ever literally said this to me, but uh, well, you know, the student must have like written the first draft and then like, you know, like you clean it up and added your name to it. And that's, that's, that again, like that may be, may be true with some mm. people, you know, not like casting aspersions on anyone, but that's not at all how I work. Like that would be an ina- inaccurate description of other, of, um, you know, um, any, any of my papers. Um, some, some, some people were, were a little bit sort of, um, What's the word? Like I said, I said, I said condescending, and I think I, I, I've, I've again. This is a minority of people, but I, there, there are some people who um, kind of communicated without actually saying the words something like, "Oh, that's cute. You're writing with a student. Like you're so nice to do that." And um, I was like, mm. "Well, um, I don't." really think of it as being nice. I think of it as doing something that is good for my career, right? Like students have good ideas and unique perspectives on the law. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, yeah, just to mention another of my collaborations, I've got a paper um, coming out in the Cardozo Law Review with um, Emily Bartlett, who is another former student of mine, and her undergraduate major mm-hmm. was nutrition. And so we wrote a paper about the health consequences of sex segregation in sports. 
And she had all of this information um, and knowledge about eating disorders, right? Like things that I, that would have taken me months to dig into on my own. And so all of that is just to say that this isn't sort of, um, you know, like me, um, you know, like holding a student's hand and like leading them through the collaboration process. Like this is the student really bringing something unique. And I felt that that was true with each of my collaborations. Um, but that, that, that didn't seem to be, that, 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 that did seem to be what, um, everybody thought of it. So there's really been kind of a range of reactions. And um, to go back to your earlier point, Brian, I think that's because um, this is not the norm in legal academy, in the legal academy, the way it is in other disciplines. And I think it's a shame. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, my experience has been the same that I learn a lot from my students when I write with them, because they all bring knowledge that, that I don't have myself. Even just, you know, like a second, at, at, at a minimum, they're bringing a second brain, right? Yeah. Which can only make the project better. But a lot of the time, they also have like a whole knowledge platform or um, people have had careers before law school. Uh, you know, it can be really fruitful for those reasons, too. You know, I'm curious how people have responded to your collaborations with students. You know, I think it's, it's I, I have to say my experiences have been very similar to your own. You know, there's a real range of people who don't care, people who think it's cool, and people who kind of look down their nose at it. And, you know, I think that's unfortunate because I really think, and it sounds like you've had the similar experience to me, but I, I found it a very beneficial experience, um, you know, in learning from the student, in having somebody else to bounce ideas off of and get the paper together faster. Um, but also it's a great kind of pedagogical experience for the student. And I think it's really rewarding for them as a learning experience. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's, you know, like I've, I've described all of my collaborations as equal collaborations and that's certainly true. Something that I have that the student doesn't have is I kind of have, um, you know, like our unique publishing um uh, you know, the, 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 the idiosyncrasies of the law review publication um, process figured out, or maybe figured out be a little bit strong because nobody has that figured out. <laughs> but, you know, like I've, I've, I've been to that rodeo yeah. a few times. And, you know, I, I know things like, okay, so you just submit through Scholastica and Expresso. And I think we should probably submit to about this many journals. And then um, you know, like these, these, these are some good specialty journals that, um, I think would be a good home for the piece too, like that kind of thing. Right. And I, I make sure to always sit down with the student and, um, we submit the paper together. Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact, in fact, they submit the paper and I kind of sit at their elbow, like, um, you know, like talking about the pros and cons of doing things huh. a certain way. Oh, cool. Um, so, yeah, so that's definitely part of the, um, yeah. the process. And so in, in closing, I know that you involve your co-authors in kind of the afterlife of the paper as well. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about that, sort of like getting the paper out there in the world and, and how you involve your co-authors in that process. So I always try to find... Um, at least one and perhaps more additional um, ways for the student to engage in, as you say, the afterlife of the paper. Um, so for example, with 
Kira. She presented the consent forms paper with me at the University of Denver at our in-house faculty colloquium. Uh, Joanne, um, in her first year as a prosecutor, um, I was invited to give a talk at the Colorado Women's Bar Association on cyber law related topics. And so I was like, this is perfect. Like we'll present our paper. Um, I took another collaborator of mine, Aaron Belzer, to the junior, junior faculty federal courts conference, um, which I think was um, amazing for everybody involved. Um, Aaron and I also wrote a Washington Post op-ed on one of our collaborations, you know, and so th these are just examples, but I, I, I promote work that I write with students just like I promote my own work. Like I want to make sure that it's getting to the right people in, in the academy and beyond the academy. Um, now, all of this, of course, is limited by my own time and the students' time, but I, I think that there are a lot of really um, interesting and fruitful ways that you can introduce the student not just to um, the process of producing scholarship, but also to this larger scholarly conversation and the way that it interfaces with the popular media. And I think that if somebody's going to take the time to, uh, you know, uh, embark on a collaboration with a student, um, why not do all of it, right? Like, why not, why not involve the student in the rest of it as well? And again, I see that as something with benefits for me, um, right? It was like really cool to be at this conference with Joanne, uh, a, a, a practicing prosecutor, you know, like talking about this thing we'd written together um, and something with benefits to the student, right? Because it was a conference that she wouldn't necessarily have been invited to without, um, you know, a tenured professor as a co-author. So, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the afterlife of the, of the collaboration is... Um, in some sense, just as important as the collaboration itself. And I would encourage anybody who's thinking about collaborating to think about that as well, because it's honestly, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nancy, this has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot about how to make my own collaborations with students better. And I hope listeners will consider co-authoring papers with with their students as well. And I can only say that uh, I wish I had been able to take your classes as a law student because it sounds like you're a lot of fun to work with. Oh my goodness, that's so kind of you. And believe me, it goes both ways. <laughs> awesome. Well, I hope to talk to you soon. Okay. Take care, Brian. Thanks again for having me on. Sound I found. You may clap, rap, tap, slap, but snap makes the world go round. Snap, crackle, pop, rice krispies. I say it's crackle, the crispy sound. You gotta have crackle or the clock's not wound. Geese crackle, feathers tickle, belts buckle, beats pickle, but crackle makes the world go round. Snap, crackle, pop, rice krispies. Now I insist that pops the sound The best is missed unless pops around You can't stop hopping when the cereal's popping Pop makes the world go round Snap, crackle, pop, rice krispies Snap, you crackle, the pop is the sound You dab the heads, crackle, as the pops not round Make rap, pop, rap, and the cereal's popping Snap, crackle, pop, makes the world go round Kellogg's best to you